We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's been nearly two weeks since the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade. Though it was expected, in practice, our new state-by-state reality is filled with questions, turmoil, and risk calculus by reproductive health providers. Legislatures in more than two dozen states have already or are preparing to eliminate or severely restrict abortion access. Some providers immediately halted services as soon as the court's decision came out, while other providers are now scrambling to care for an influx of people seeking help. And patients, some as young as 10 years old, are crossing state lines for emergency abortions. What is this world? We examine the landscape of reproductive rights post-Roe and answer your questions about the impact of the Supreme Court's ruling. That's coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Experts have been predicting for years that this Supreme Court would overturn Roe versus Wade. And then it actually happened. The Dobbs decision stripped the federal constitutional right to an abortion from Americans, leaving it up to states to decide the issue. This has left a fractured landscape with reproductive rights varying wildly state by state. Every state legislature is making its own rules. Some states have passed legislation that, quote, triggered when the Dobbs decision came down and banned abortion outright. Others have passed incremental bans or hurried legislation through that limits reproductive rights. More liberal state legislatures have passed bills of their own to preserve and extend abortion access, and in some cases seeking to enshrine the right in their constitutions. To help us get a handle on what's happened in these weeks, we're joined by two experts, Elizabeth Nash, Principal Policy Associate for State Issues at the Guttmacher Institute, research, a research and policy organization committed to advancing sexual and reproductive health and rights worldwide. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by Margot Sanger-Katz, a healthcare reporter from The New York Times. Welcome, Margot. Good morning. Uh, Elizabeth, let's start with you and just kind of get the the lay of this new land. How many states have now outlawed abortion? Well, as of today, we have 11 states that have abortion bans um, in effect, and primarily these states are in the South. So Mm -hmm. we're basically looking at like Alabama to Texas and then up to Missouri. So, Mm -hmm. you know, most of them are really clustered together. Mm-hmm. And there are more that are coming, as you were intimating in the intro. Yeah. And are the bans all sort of like cut and paste legislation or is there like a lot of variation between the different states? Oh, there there really is variation because some of these bans, like in Texas is, right now, is enforcing its pre-row abortion ban. Mm-hmm. While Florida just adopted a 15-week ban, other states have six-week bans. And they also tend to have different exceptions. So all of them have an exception for life endangerment, but from there, it really varies. Hmm. So it's a, it's a really complicated landscape. 
you know, we had heard about these trigger laws that would go into effect on on sort of decision. Can you explain sort of how those work and if they're, yeah, as you noted, Florida has a new ban. So how are they different from the things that are being implemented uh, post Dobbs? Right. So the trigger ban. So if we step back just a second, you know, we are estimating that there are 26 states that are certain or likely to ban abortion. And out of those 26 states, there's 13. So half of them have these trigger bans. And the trigger bans are abortion bans that have essentially an effective date that is when Roe is a, was overturned. Hmm. But it also wasn't like a light switch with all 13 going into effect at the same time. So some of them are in effect, some of them are being challenged. And some of them will go into effect in the coming weeks because that's how those laws were set up. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, let's talk about some of those challenges. What are abortion rights advocates doing to to respond either legally or, or otherwise? Yeah, so we have seen a raft of cases being filed in state court, right? So without federal protections, what's left? We have state constitutions. And so we're seeing these cases being filed everywhere from Idaho to Louisiana to Utah, where people are using the state constitution to say that these abortion bans are unconstitutional. So they're looking for provisions in the constitutions like equal protection provisions or privacy protections, for example, as a way to say that the state constitution does protect abortion rights and these bans should not be, should be struck down. I mean, how should we see those lawsuits? Are those last ditch attempts or are they pretty serious challenges or is it is that also going to vary state by state it's a total mix um there are some that really appear to be very strong that these state constitutions should have these protections in them and then there are others like where you're, you're looking at the state constitution and it's really unclear if there could be uh, protections within it but also thinking about how the court, the state courts have changed, right? People, for, we have been talking about how federal courts have shifted further to the right for several years. Well, the same thing has been happening in a lot of state courts as well. So that is also a huge factor in how some of these cases will play out. Marco Singer-Katz, let's bring you into the discussion. The landscape that Elizabeth Nash is sort of describing has a tremendous amount, truly tremendous amount of both variability and uncertainty. How's that playing out on the front lines among medical professionals? Well, I think a really important thing to understand is that, you know, in some of these states, the bans are very clear. They're clearly written. They're clearly being enforced. And in those places, abortion is not being provided. But then there are other states where I think the legal situation is a little bit more uncertain. You know, there are these legal challenges. uh, There are concerns about whether the law is crafted in a way that can be enforced. But in a lot of those places, you see that providers have stopped offering abortions too, because all of these laws that are banning abortion are providing um, pretty serious penalties for healthcare professionals who perform abortions in violation of the law. In most of the cases, they are felony criminal penalties. So people would be Mm -hmm. looking at prison time. And in a few states, they also face civil uh, liability. So uh, people could sue them and they could have to pay a lot of money in judgment. 
And so what we see is the medical providers just don't want to take a chance. They don't want to be on the wrong side of a law, even if they think that the law is a little iffy, or even if they think maybe they will prevail in court ultimately. And so there are a lot of places in the country where there just is no one providing abortions. And that means that women who want abortions, who might have gotten abortions in those states before this court decision, um, are faced with some difficult choices about whether to continue their pregnancy or to travel to another state or to seek uh, methods of abortion outside of the legal healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So, in your reporting, you've also noted that the exception clauses in legislation—you know, much, much discussed exception clauses in cases of rape and incest and, and other things—might not actually keep clinics operating precisely because of the dynamics that you're describing. I mean, if people are facing possible lawsuits or felony criminal uh, penalties, they they may just not perform any abortions at all. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of political discussion. I feel like we get a lot of questions asked of politicians about these exceptions uh, for rape and incest, uh, sometimes for these life and health concerns for uh, pregnant women. But I think as a practical matter, if you're a healthcare provider in one of these states and you're facing potential criminal penalties, I think you know you may be very reluctant to second guess what a judge or jury might say about whether or not a given patient's health condition is in fact life-threatening enough to qualify for an exception, or whether in fact the patient was raped or would be considered to have been raped by whoever is adjudicating your case. And so in my conversations with abortion providers in states where abortion remains legal, I have heard of a couple of examples of patients who should have qualified for such exceptions in their home state, but were still traveling out of state in order to obtain abortions Mm -hmm. because no one would give them the abortion at home. Mm -hmm. And I think another detail that is important is in the United States, and this is different than a lot of other countries, abortions do tend to predominantly be offered in kind of specialized abortion clinics. So, you know, it's not that doctors, all OBGYNs provide abortions to their patients as part of their normal care, generally you go to these specialized places. And when these places all close, when there are no abortion clinics in your state, even if there is a doctor who might think that you qualify for an exception and who might be willing to give you an abortion, it might be very difficult to figure out who that person is and be able to get to them. And so what we see is that a lot of these bans, practically speaking, are very close to total bans. And even women who technically qualify for these exceptions often have to go someplace else if they need an abortion. In this state-by-state world, it's kind of difficult to imagine the new border realities. Can you talk about what might happen or say is happening on the like Texas-New Mexico border? Yeah, I think this is pretty interesting. You know, abortion providers have known that this kind of ruling was potentially coming for several years. Many of them have encountered state legislation that has made it difficult for them to operate in the past. Uh, They've obviously were aware that this case was before the Supreme Court. They knew about the changes in the composition of the court. Um, And so many of them have been planning for the future and trying to think about how they can continue to offer services for the patients that they're currently treating uh, without running afoul of the law. And so what we've started seeing, and I think we will see more of this in the future is abortion providers actually picking up and moving 
out of their current state and into a neighboring state and trying to set up abortion clinics very close to the border. So Whole Women's Health, uh, that's an abortion provider in Texas. They had a handful of clinics in Texas for many years. They just announced yesterday that they're going to move to New Mexico and set up some clinics close to the border in New Mexico. I also uh, spoke with Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin. Wisconsin is one of those states that has a very old law. Uh, they're law banning abortion dates back to 1849, uh, but mm. all of the clinics there closed. And many of those Planned Parenthood professionals are actually in Illinois training uh, and learning how to use the medical health record and other parts of the system there so that they can provide abortions to their patients who may be now traveling from Wisconsin to Illinois. And uh, there are some examples of this in the West as well. I think we're going to see the locations of a lot of abortion clinics shifting and changing and getting closer to state borders to try to minimize the distance that women will have to travel to reach a place where they can obtain a legal abortion. So just to clarify on the Wisconsin case, that old law essentially became the rule of the land when the federal constitutional right to an abortion went away. Yeah, I think it's actually, it's an interesting legal question. I would be curious what Elizabeth uh, thinks of this, but my understanding is that, you know, a lot of states did not permit abortion before uh, Roe versus Wade was decided. And some of them in the, you know, 50 years since then have changed their laws uh, to make abortion legal and others did not. And so Wisconsin is an example of a state where they have this very old law, a law that dates uh, back to before women could vote. Um, that is still on the books. And I think it is an active question that's being pursued in courts now. Does a law that has been on the books for this long, that was passed so long ago, and that has been enforced, uh, not at all, of course, for the last 50 years, is it still legally in effect? Uh, but while we wait for the answer to that question, I think the abortion providers are very reluctant to test it. And they are concerned that uh, prosecutors might pursue them for charges if they offer abortions in Wisconsin. And we will hear more from Elizabeth Nash on that question when we come back from the break. We're talking about the national landscape and what it looks like nearly two weeks after the Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade. We're joined by Margot Sanger-Katz, healthcare reporter from The New York Times, and Elizabeth Nash, principal policy associate for state issues at the Guttmacher Institute, a research and policy organization. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the national abortion landscape nearly two weeks after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision, of course. Which states have banned abortion? How are abortion health care providers responding? What, if anything, is Congress doing? 
We're joined by Elizabeth Nash, Principal Policy Associate for State Issues at the Guttmacher Institute, as well as Margot Sanger-Katz, a healthcare reporter from The New York Times. And we would like to invite you into the conversation as well. This is a confusing landscape. What are your questions about the status of abortion nationwide? As you can hear, these are two really uh, preeminent experts on this. How have you been responding to the reversal of Roe v. Wade? And have you taken any actions yourself in response to the Dobbs decision? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Elizabeth Nash, right before the break, we were talking uh, with Margot about Wisconsin's old law, which then sort of at least froze the ability of abortion providers to to do uh, abortions. Can you talk a little bit about the legal issues of these states where they never updated their laws to explicitly allow for abortion and they had an abortion ban on the books from, from the distant past? Right. So we basically had eight of these states. And in these states, some of them had other bans that they've passed since then. You think about states like Oklahoma. But in a few of them, they never did anything else. So you have states like Wisconsin, where there hasn't been another abortion ban adopted. And so can this pre-row ban go into effect? Because while no other abortion ban has been adopted, other kinds of restrictions have been around clinic regulations, abortion counseling, waiting period, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And basically, the part of the question is, do these abortion restrictions supersede a law from 1849? Because certainly when passing these abortion restrictions in the, you know, in the past 50, over the past 50 years, the state knew that this mm-hmm. pre-row abortion ban was on the books. So there's a real question of whether that old law, that old abortion ban could actually go into effect. And it's kind of like a a weird legal argument, but instead of one that's more substantive around rights, Mm -hmm. but it's one that may be successful. Yeah. I'm really reminded by, you know, Nina Totenberg in the moments after the Dobbs decision came down called this uh, decision a a nuclear bomb, like the, the, the legal equivalent of a nuclear bomb. And you can see how much confusion and disarray this has caused, even over and above the the taking away of this uh, constitutional right. I do want to talk about a couple other particular states with you, Elizabeth Nash. We've talked about states that have some of the most draconian laws, but there are also states that are going the other way, trying to preserve and extend abortion access. Can you tell us uh, about some of those, obviously California among them? Oh, that would be a joy. So thank you for the opportunity. Yes, uh, you know, for one, you know, California has been at the forefront for protecting abortion rights for years, if not decades, right? Um, and so other states really looked at California and and it's been really um, revitalizing to see what is happening through the, the, the governor and the state legislature. So, you know, one of the major pieces of legislation that got, has gotten signed in California recently is um, essentially a budget bill around reproductive health. And it's allocated 
over $200 million for reproductive health, with the vast majority of that funding really aimed at shoring up abortion rights and access. Everything from providing financial resources, for patients, but all to providing training for providers. It's you know, really um, you know, a broad range of care and services that will be provided through all of this funding. And you know, on top of that, California has about another, well, well over a dozen bills that are moving through the legislature around protecting abortion providers and um ensuring that you know training is available for um, non-physician clinicians to ensuring that Medicaid transportation is available for abortion. So there are all these pieces that are really coming together with, within California and other states are taking note. Mm. And so other states are also pursuing similar um, policies and programs Right. So we're seeing money in the Massachusetts budget bill for abortion funding. You know, we have also seen where California, I mean, Connecticut and New York have established protections for providers. And, and by protections, what we're talking about are protections for abortion providers who are providing abortions within the, these protective states, but where an abortion ban state may try to extradite them because they're providing care to people from um, who are coming from, say, Texas or, or Mississippi where abortion is banned. Mm. Do they need yeah. that protection? Do they need that to be made law? Or is that an open question still? It is it is somewhat of an open question. But what I will say is that we need all the protections right now because what we're seeing are you know, states primarily in the middle of the country in the South that are abdicating their responsibilities to their residents. And so, and they're go, and we know that they are going to go beyond simply banning abortion within their state, right? They're going to try to ban travel for abortion, even though we know we have a federal right to travel. They're going to try to limit the scope of how abortion funds and practical support operate, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't need to go too far to think, well, mm -hmm. let's put in some some protections around our abortion providers. I mean, it just sounds like criminalizing almost anything a woman might do of who could possibly <laughs> be carrying a child. Yes. I mean, that that's what we're seeing. I mean, the the abortion bans are are one worded in a way that, you know, Margo was describing how confusing it is for providers to know when care can be provided, but also there are all sorts of pieces in these bills that, you know, we're hearing from abortion opponents Well, they're saying, okay, ectopic pregnancy, that wasn't supposed to, you know, that's not supposed to be covered. Well, if it's not supposed to be covered, then make it clear in the law, mm -hmm. right? And so these laws are just written in a way, I think, intentionally to create chaos. Yeah. Margo, for healthcare providers out there, have you talked to people who are in, you know, a states that want to preserve and extend abortion access who are worried about doing procedures or even providing uh, you know, medical abortions to to people from uh, abortion ban states? I haven't heard that so far. Um, you know, many of the abortion providers that I've talked to in these states are really trying to think about um, how to extend access, how to increase their hours or triage patients, uh, you know, uh, 
establish call centers, connect people with financial assistance. It, it seems now that the providers in the states where abortion are still legal are not particularly worried about these other states coming for them. But I do think that Elizabeth is right that we don't really know what the next thing that these states are going to do is. And there have been some indications from lawmakers in a couple of these anti-abortion states that they might try to pass laws in the future that would further imperil um, abortion providers or that might criminalize uh, certain types of travel. So I, I think it is something that uh, people in the um, abortion provider community are watching closely. But my sense right now is that they do not feel deterred so far. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in some callers. Lots of calls and questions coming in. Uh, Miriam in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, yeah, my question is in regards to non-surgical abortion alternatives like the morning after pill. And my question is, I'm wondering what the implications or perhaps the protections might be for people from a state where things like this are legal, um, what the implications would be um, for them providing something like non-surgical medical alternatives to women out of state in states where abortions are illegal. Thank you for that question, Miriam. Uh, Elizabeth Nash. Yeah. So, you know, we we know that obviously we can use telehealth to provide medication abortion. It's safe and it's effective. What is the complicated part is the law. And really, we there are attorneys that are looking at this right now to try to figure out if someone from a protected state, right, an access state like California could provide telehealth to someone in another state that has a different set of laws. And not just a different set of laws around abortion, but a different set of laws around how telehealth can be provided. Um, and you know, if there can be telehealth care provided across state lines, that's not always automatic. And so there are lots of pieces that go into play when figuring this out. And that's also one of the reasons some of these abortion provider protections have been um, developed in as a way to also help protect that once um, once people figure out more around telehealth. Yeah. Have you heard anything about that, Margo? Just curious. I think, you know, a way of thinking about this in general is that the states that are trying to ban abortion are trying to ban abortion of all sorts, including mm -hmm. abortions that are achieved by medicines, by pills, um, and not just abortions that are happening procedurally by a physician in a clinic. So, you know, when you look at the map and, and look at the 11 states that Elizabeth mentioned where abortion is illegal, they also are banning these forms of medication abortion. And there are 19 states that do not allow this form of telehealth medication abortion where a patient could see a doctor uh, you know, on the phone or on a um, video call, get a prescription and have pills mailed to her. Uh, so currently people who want abortions of those sorts still also have to travel out of their state and into a state in which abortion is legal. Um, I did want to distinguish between these pills that can cause an abortion and uh, plan B, the emergency contraception that the mm -hmm. caller mentioned, because I think that these are actually different categories of medicine. 
plan B, emergency contraception, uh, those are approved by the FDA as contraception. They are not considered to cause abortions. They prevent pregnancy uh, by preventing ovulation. And while I think that there are some anti-abortion activists who are concerned about this form of contraception and think that it ought to be regulated and banned, uh, in general, it is not touched by these current abortion laws and uh, should access to those medicines really shouldn't be uh, limited by these laws. Mm -hmm. That is different than abortion pills, which do cause uh, the termination of an existing pregnancy. Those are also approved by the FDA and they're available from doctors. And in fact, more than half of abortions in the United States currently are done with pills and not with procedures. So just, I think it's important to distinguish between those two things. Emergency contraception can prevent a pregnancy from happening, um, abortion pills and a pregnancy that is already established and they have different legal regimes governing them. We have some fascinating questions coming in on individual states. But Elizabeth Nash, before we go to them, I did want to ask you about, you know, the states that are passing protections for abortion providers like California. If the sort of worst, most anti-abortion scenarios take place, you get a national abortion ban because the politics of the country continue to to move in, in that direction at the national level. What will state level protections do at that point? Do we know? Uh, we don't know. We we don't know the answer to that question because you know we ha- that will be a, a a federal law, and you know we don't know how that would play out in the states where there not only are protections but there have been there's legal history that supports abortion rights, right? Like in states like Connecticut and California and several others, the state constitution has been interpreted to protect abortion rights. And now we have on the ballot, right, in California this November, a a measure that would enshrine abortion rights into the constitution. We also have one of these um, constitutional amendments to protect abortion rights um, on the ballot in Vermont. Uh, this November, and one that um, we're waiting to see if we'll get on the ballot in Michigan. So, you know, you have these states with very different constitutions that, you know, have um, some protections in place and then overlay a national ban. That is a complicated legal question Mm. for sure. We're talking about the national abortion landscape and what it looks like nearly two weeks after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. We're joined by Elizabeth Nash, Principal Policy Associate for State Issues at the Guttmacher Institute, as well as Margot Sanger-Katz, healthcare reporter from The New York Times. We also do want to hear from you. Is the reversal of Roe v. Wade impacting your own personal decisions? Like, let's say, where you might go to college or want your kids to go to college, whether to move to a state with more limited reproductive rights. You know, throughout the pandemic, there's been all this talk about Californians moving to Austin, Texas. Is that something that's on your mind? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the email's forum at kqed.org. I want to bring in, before we go to the break, Mike DeBonis, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. You know, I, I think the most obvious thing is there has been a lot of criticism uh, from uh, about the response that Democrats have made. What has that response been? 
Well, it's it's been what you know we described in a in a um, story this weekend as a patchwork, and you've got sort of um, seemingly uh, uncoordinated efforts happening uh, in the from the White House to Capitol Hill to the campaign trail to state houses across the country, and there is a perception. And you know, uh, reasonable people can disagree on whether it's reality that that these th these efforts are not being coordinated in any way. And I think part of that is reflecting frustration with the President Biden uh, and the White House with uh, how they responded in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that there is this perception that it's not coordinated, it's not organized, um, even though I think every Democrat and every supporter of reproductive rights agrees that this is sort of a this is a crisis moment and not only a crisis moment, but one that's that was uh, very, very predictable and yeah. uh, certainly seemed like a fait accompli um, back in May when the when the draft mm -hmm. was leaked by Politico. I mean, what are the things that could be done if the leadership was there? Well, you know, that's the, that's part of the issue here. Why why there's the sense of frustration is because the sort of legislative backstops that 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 could be possible. Uh, you know, a federal law guaranteeing uh, the the constitutional rights that had been secured by Roe and Casey and the other cases. Um, th those aren't possible right now, and that's because of the United States Senate. The fact that there is a sixty vote filibuster threshold that Democrats cannot. Uh, overcome right now with the votes that they have, and they do not have unanimity among themselves in changing the rules to, to make it a, a, a matter of simple majority. Um, there is an acceptance that that is going to be the case. They went through this earlier this year in January on voting rights. Um, they have two senators who are firmly opposed to changing the filibuster, and that has not changed. And, and so you have this certain, certain amount of um, you know, for lack of a better word, impotence in, in being able to change federal law. And that has colored the response uh, from the, the administration and from Congress, um, where they have basically made the case that, well, to, to affect change here, we have to go to the ballot box. This has to be decided uh, in the elections this year, the elections in 2024 and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're encountering is frustration that you know, that message is not being met by a uh, by a know, plan, a, <laughs> by a plan and, and really an activization effort and a um, an effort by the by the by the president on down through the congressional leaderships and the rank and file yeah. to inspire people to come out and vote on this issue. Yeah. And that's that's the challenge they have to meet in the coming months. We're talking about the national abortion landscape nearly two weeks after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the post-Roe national abortion landscape. We're joined by Mike DeBonis, congressional reporter for The Washington Post, Margot Sanger-Katz, healthcare reporter from The New York Times, and Elizabeth Nash, principal policy associate for state issues at the Guttmacher Institute, which is a research and policy org committed to advancing sexual and reproductive health and rights worldwide. I want to bring in another caller, Sarah in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi there. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So, um, you know, you asked the question of is this impacting kind of your daily or future life decisions? And um, as a as a woman who's unfortunately suffered multiple miscarriages, mm-hmm. I have to think about for work travel, if or when I, I may be pregnant again, would I not want to go to a conference in another state, go to a business meeting mm-hmm. in the event that I needed um, kind of urgent reproductive care. And it's crazy to think uh, that you kind of have to think about those scenarios in this day and age now. Oh, wow. I mean, how do you think your employer would respond to you telling them that? So I have a super supportive uh, employer, and I think that they would understand, but it is yet another burden that you're then uh kind of saddled with that you even would have to have this conversation, right? And um, a lot of times you don't necessarily want to share an early pregnancy with Mm -hmm. um, people who aren't close to you, right, Uh, let alone your your boss or your employer. So even having a supportive employer who would probably understand and support your decision living in a supportive state, it just is – it just feels like right. It's this compounding burden that's put on women as a whole mm-hmm. to to share these very personal situations. Mm. And so, uh, I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Margot. I wanted to uh, take take that one to you. I mean, that that is. I mean, these situations that seem like they would have been unthinkable are now. This is this is the reality. Um, how have employers started to deal with situations like this that, that come up? Well, we have seen a number of employers who have come forward in the last couple of weeks and say that they will include as a covered benefit travel for women who want to go to a state where abortion is legal in order to obtain an abortion. So that's like a new benefit. There are a lot of employers that have always covered abortion as part of their health insurance coverage, uh, but this would be a new benefit for travel. And I do think the caller, you know, raises some interesting questions about that kind of benefit. While I think it is a way in which employers are trying to help women who may face difficult circumstances based on where they live, I also think it is 
it forces this kind of difficult uh, conversation between employers and women early, potentially in pregnancy about what their health status is. And, you know, uh, generally speaking, people's reproductive health care is private and a lot of women want to keep it private. And so this would be a scenario in which a woman would need to tell her boss, you know, I am pregnant and don't want to be, and I uh, want to apply for this funding in order to go and obtain an abortion. So uh, I think it is an effort by employers to try to uh, work with this situation, but I think it does create other problems and barriers. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I am curious how often uh, such a benefit will be used because of the privacy concerns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to get to some of the specific state questions, uh, and I think I'm going to send these over to you, Elizabeth Nash. There are a bunch. Let's see. Uh, Noel tweets. Kansas is voting on August 2nd on an amendment to the Constitution, whether abortion is a right. Does anyone have polling data or how does that race look? Elizabeth Nash, I got you. Maybe I'll move on to a different question. Um, Veronica tweets, California is expected to see a major influx of people from other states seeking abortion services. What steps are being taken to train more abortion providers? I'm a pediatrician and have been asking for abortion training for years. Margot Sanger-Katz, have you heard about this? I am not sure what is happening in California. I know there are a number of states that are trying to change the rules so that providers who have medical licenses other than an MD can provide abortions, you know, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, other kinds of medical providers. Uh, But I do think it raises a question, sort of a nationwide question, which is, as abortion is banned in more states, it probably means that fewer doctors are going to receive training in how to perform abortions as part of their normal medical training. So, you know, until very recently, abortion uh, was legal in every state. And so a lot of obstetrician gynecologists would, as part of their medical residency, perhaps receive some training in how to perform abortions. And while many of them would not go on to do that as a part of their normal practice, uh, it did create a reservoir of people who knew how to perform abortions and knew how to provide these procedures for miscarriage care, as uh, one of our previous callers mentioned And so I do think now there's actually like an interesting issue related to medical education, because of course, doctors uh, move around during the course of their career, they may uh, receive their medical residency training in one state and then go on to practice in another state. And so over time, if it becomes harder for these doctors to learn how to perform abortions, they may not be available later in their career uh, if they are called upon to do so and want to. Hmm. And uh, Marco, do you have any uh, info about that Kansas constitutional amendment vote? Yeah, so I spoke with uh, some of the activists who are uh, behind this measure, uh, anti-abortion activists who are trying to remove uh, a Supreme Court ruling that says that there is a right to abortion in the Kansas Constitution. They want uh, to have a constitutional amendment that says, no, there is no right to abortion, and and then let the state decide uh, what legislation they would want to pass to regulate abortion. Uh, And that activist said that the latest polling that she had seen was actually like pretty close, uh, pretty evenly matched. I'm not aware of much public polling on that race. And I have seen uh, in recent weeks a pretty compelling advertisement that's been running on television from opponents of this constitutional amendment. So I do think there's been quite a lot of spending by both sides. And I think there's going to be a lot of public debate about this amendment 
in the coming months, especially now that Roe has been overturned. Um, it's definitely a state that I'm going to be watching. Uh, I do think in general, uh, passing voter referenda is hard. I think it is hard to get voters to show up uh, and vote to change the law. I think it's easier uh, to get everyone to just preserve the status quo. But uh, there are a lot of uh, people in Kansas who would like to be able to restrict abortion. And I think activists uh, for the constitutional amendment are doing a lot of door knocking. They are handing out signs and they're doing other kinds of activism. They're doing their own television advertising. And so as we get closer to the election, I think we'll have a clearer picture of how that may fare. Uh, let's bring in another caller, Jeff in Los Altos. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Um, you, you mentioned that you know, there's really no clear path for the Democrats to get through, you know, their, uh, you know, abortion package. But um, is there a room for a, uh, some sort of compromise that would allow, you know, abortion in all 50 states, but very restricted form, such as what's available in Europe? I mean, it seems to be that's the very, very, very popular, uh, you know, throughout all 50 states. And is there any path to any compromise legislation that might be possible in that way? We will ask Mike DeBonis, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it, it gets at something that's important to understand, which is that um, the, the, our, our national legislature is out of step with where public opinion tends to be, um, which is that there is fairly wide, poll after poll shows fairly wide public support for abortion being readily available in the early months of pregnancy and people get more and more uncomfortable with it. Um, later in pregnancy. But, um, you know, there's a certain polarization around this issue where, um, you know, that and, you know, the people who get elected to office um, tend to uh, gravitate towards, you know, sort of maximalist positions on either side. And uh, there, some states have laws that, that look a lot like that. But the, the, it's it's very difficult to see a compromise like that coming together um, in the current makeup of the of the Congress. Um, you have d- Democrats who are, um, you know, for, for various reasons inclined not to put any restrictions uh, at all on w- what a woman's uh, access to abortion should be, and you have you know Republicans who are obviously very keen to you know you know, institute even more restrictions, you know, starting with 20 week bans and more and more are talking about total bans right now. Um, and so it, it's just hard to see that coming together. There, there was an effort underway in the Senate earlier this year and, and to some degree it is still uh, alive, which is to sort of codify Roe v. Wade or the current, the status quo, the pre-Dobbs status quo in a federal law. And there was some interest from two Republicans, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski in the Senate, to do that. But you couldn't get to to three or four Republicans, let alone the 10 you need to get over a filibuster. So a lot of Democrats are just really not interested in even having that conversation. Elizabeth Nash, I wanted to ask you about Michigan, which seems to be one of the states that's trying to, at the state level, come up with some kind of compromise compromise proposal? Well, you know, what we're seeing in Michigan is really three different things happening at the same time. So 
One thing is that we are seeing this effort to codify abortion rights into the state constitution. And right, those signature in the signature gathering stage, and we'll find out more next week about that. But then we're also seeing um, a court case to strike down their pre-Roe abortion ban, right? This abortion ban from the 19th century. And, um, you know, and right now where it is in state court is that the state court has said that that ban cannot go into effect while they figure out if it's constitutional. And then we've also had the governor step in and ask the state Supreme Court to strike down the pre-Roe ban right now. So there's a lot going on in Michigan and all of this, right? They have this backdrop of a very conservative legislature that wants to pass abortion restrictions and has done so along with an attorney general and a governor who support abortion rights. So there is a lot to watch in Michigan. It, in effect, it's a little bit like Kansas or and North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin where the legislature is very conservative, but the statewide officials are much more supportive of abortion rights. And so you really have sort of this, you know, mismatch. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, on these questions of sort of what, what can be done, you know, one listener asks, in states that have banned abortion but also have Native American reservations, could tribes offer abortions on their land? And Janice in Oakland on the phones has a, a similar question about U.S. military um, bases. Is it, Elizabeth Nash, could you, Talk a little bit about that. Is that are those yeah. possibilities, real possibilities? Well, I don't know about real possibilities. We have heard from the administration that that's not something that they're really interested in doing. But beyond that, the, it is, and I know I keep saying this word complicated, but there are some complications with federal law that could make this difficult to do. Now, um, in part because federal um, federal funds cannot be used for abortion, right? We have this thing called the Hyde Amendment named after Henry Hyde, um, a Republican legislator from Illinois. And it started off only applying to Medicaid where Medicaid funds, federal Medicaid funds, not state Medicaid funds could only be used in limited circumstances for abortion. And then over time it got expanded and it now applies into the military. It applies on um, to um, IHS funds. So it's, you know, so there are laws that are, and as well as some of other laws around refusal and um, whether or not, you know, uh, uh, organizations can be forced to provide abortions or forced not to provide abortions. So there is a lot of complicated legal understanding that needs to be figured out before this could happen. Mm -hmm. And as well as we've seen that some, um, Native Americans tribes are not interested in doing this. Mm -hmm. So this isn't sort of like um, a universal stance by all of the, the people running reservations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think just the, to your broader point, there's no one weird trick that's going to make this situation better for people. I mean, this is going to... It's a generational uh, fight here uh, along a lot of different uh, dimensions. Um, let's bring in... Richard from Campbell. Yes, I'm here. Welcome. Uh, thank you. I'm a, uh, I've been retired for 30 years. I practice OBGYN, and I was doing uh, abortions before Roe versus Wade. 
I have seen the ravishes of women desperately going. I remember one clearly went over to Mexico, had a really botched up abortion, came back with bilateral tubal ovarian abscesses. We ended up to save her life, had to take out both her tubes and ovaries and drain the abscess. It's, it's just horrible. Um, my my main point is, it seems to me that the Constitution says something about our ability to pursue life, liberty, and uh, happiness of some sort. And it seems to me a woman seeking abortion hits all three of those bells. Her life, it is safer, I don't know, what it is today. I suspect it's the same, but back in my day, it was safer to have a pregnancy terminated before 12 weeks than it was to carry a pregnancy to term. So that is a decision of life and death that the mother should be able to make on her own. She should not have other people telling her whether she should carry on that extra risk to carry a pregnancy to term. Richard, thank you so much for that perspective and just um, thank you so much for for your call. I, uh, Margo, I just wanted to ask you about this. We've now had generations of people who have been dealing with this issue and just give you the the last word on sort of where we are on the safety issues. Well, I... I could talk about this for a long time, but let me just say briefly that I think there is an important difference between now and before Roe, which is, as I mentioned before, that there are now pills that can safely um, end a pregnancy and that don't really require a lot of direct medical intervention. And so what we see in a lot of other countries in the world where abortion is illegal is that these pills have become the preferred form of illegal abortion, uh, where there's sort of smuggling of them by groups or women ordering them on the internet from overseas pharmacies directly. And, you know, these pills are not perfect. And there are, of course, some safety concerns in certain situations, but in general, they are effective and they are safe early in pregnancy. And we're already seeing in Texas, a state that uh, started restricting abortion before this decision, that orders for pills from overseas tripled uh, last fall. So that I think the future of illegal abortion uh, may indeed uh, involve some dangerous things that women do to end their pregnancies. But I think predominantly, it is very likely to take the form of these safer pills. And I think that is one thing that is different about now uh, compared to the period that the caller was just describing. Yeah. Wanted to get to one last comment. Judette writes, can we talk about how maternal and post-childbirth support in the U.S. is dismal outside of the ability to obtain an abortion if women are forced to have full-term pregnancies? How can we restrict abortion without any infrastructure to support mothers and children after childbirth. We've been talking about what the national abortion landscape looks like nearly two weeks after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade with Margot Sanger-Katz, healthcare reporter from The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Margot. So glad to be here. Mike DeBonis, a congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. And Elizabeth Nash, principal policy associate for state issues at the Guttmacher Institute. Thank you for coming on, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you to all our callers and commenters. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.